This is Jeffrey Dunn, producer and director of Calypso Dreams. Hey, are you here? Well, yes. And here's to you for being here, listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. Hey, we're going to keep that whole Calypso thing going. We've got a very interesting interview from the archives with Jeffrey Dunn. Now, this was originally broadcast on radio back in 2009. Dr. Jeffrey Dunn is producer and director of the documentary film Calypso Dreams. Hey, do yourself a favor and consider watching this one. Calypso Dreams features interviews and musical performances and was filmed in Trinidad. The film features interviews and archival footage of the greatest Calypsonians of all times and seeks to answer the question, what is Calypso? And the film also seeks to ask, what's going to happen to Calypso? We've got so many interviews just like this that we want to restore and get out into the world. It's very labor-intensive, and there are associated expenses. And you can support independent media and the spoken word by visiting thepaulleslie.com support. And we thank you. Every bit helps. Now we invite you to join us as Dr. Jeffrey Dunn speaks about a uniquely Afro-Caribbean music which may or may not survive the passing of time. We certainly hope Calypso music will. Let's listen together. It is with great pleasure that we welcome Dr. Jeffrey Dunn, producer and director of the film Calypso Dreams. Jeffrey, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. Thank you for having me on. This film is very fascinating. I've really enjoyed watching it. I've, I've seen it a couple of times. My curiosity is, how did you discover Calypso music? Well, I, I guess there were two waves for my discovery. First, when I was very young, like many people in the United States, I first heard, quote-unquote, what I thought was true Calypso music through Harry Belafonte. And I had an aunt who was a huge Belafonte fan. And so I used to listen to his album entitled Calypso all the time as a young boy, and my aunt played it all the time. One of my favorite songs growing up, in fact, was Jamaica Farewell, which was, of course, a big hit. And this was the first gold-plated album in history. It was the first big, big album in the 1950s, and it made Belafonte a star. And what is it that you like about Calypso music? Well, let me, let me cut to the other part, part of the question. As an adult, I had a dear friend, Michael Horn, discover Trinidad and Carnival down there, which happens, uh, it's a pre-Lenten carnival, just like Mardi Gras in New Orleans and just like Carnival in Brazil. And an important element of Trinidad's carnival is calypso music. And one of the things that I immediately realized was, well, Belafonte's music wasn't quite calypso. It was watered-down Calypso made popular for American audiences. And what I really loved about Calypso music and what I discovered about Calypso music is the political nature of it. Even the most simple, obvious songs have very subtle, sometimes secondary, tertiary political implications to them. 
one of the identify one of the ways that people call Calypso down there is a poor man's newspaper. And it sprung out of the condition of slavery in the Caribbean, in which slaves would communicate political happenings, historical happenings to one another through the music. And a lot of times it's coded or masked, as it's called. They use double entendre. So um, something as simple as, you know, the, the famous song Rum and Coca-Cola can have varied level of meanings. And of course, Rum and Coca-Cola, was made famous here in the United States by the Andrews sisters, is really a song about anti-colonialism and has all sorts of nuance and political meaning. So I, I became very intrigued about the political nature of Calypso and just how when you go down to Trinidad, it permeates, or I should say, at least when I first started going, permeated the society and was the dominant cultural force down there and was the way people communicated about their politics. It was kind of like the letters to the editor's page. Very, very interesting. One of the central themes of this film, as we talked before the interview, is what is Calypso? So if somebody was going to approach you and ask you that question, how would you answer, what is Calypso? That's a very complex answer, but, but let me say this. First of all, one of the uh, figures in the film, Lord Relator, says, you know, in the United States, all music is about love. Uh, you know, everyone writes about love in America, but in Calypso music, we, we talk about politics, we talk about sports, we talk about history, we talk about all aspects of our life and culture in Calypso. So first of all, Calypso is an all-encompassing art form that describes the day-to-day -day lives of people in Trinidad. And it differs from American music that way. In the film, David Rutter, who is probably the youngest Calypsonian of that generation, who's still very popular, says, in the United States, I think Bob Dylan would qualify as a Calypsonian. And you know, Dylan, of course, in his early days, wrote about everything, less so these days. But I think you get the idea. It's, it's, a, it's a full force, full vocabulary type of music with a particular Caribbean beat that, that defines it. And there are, there are very specific ways to write a calypso. It has three to four stanzas and a repeated chorus. And all calypsos fall into that type of uh, formatting. It's, it's, you know, like the early days of, of uh, romantic poetry. There were very clear-cut line numbers, pentameters, etc., line patterns that would define a certain type of poetry. Calypso is defined that way as well. The one thing I've found about calypso is it can be a very addictive form of music. So I can certainly understand somebody really falling in love with the music, but what made you want to produce a movie of this kind, a documentary about Calypso music? Well, I, I, have, to, I have to credit that with my partner, Michael Horn, with whom I co-produced and co-directed the film. Michael is a passionate uh, Calypso aficionado, and he first started going down there in the mid-'80s and came coming back with these tapes, tapes back then, not CDs, and newspaper accounts of all the happenings in the Calypso tent. Uh, and then, of course, he was also a pan fanatic, too, still band, still drum fanatic. So I 
I discovered this, this art form or these art forms in the mid eighties. And I've been a documentary filmmaker for now 30 years and we kept trying to raise money to go down there. We realized that a lot of the old timers were dying. And then one day I ran into Michael on the street in our hometown of Santa Cruz, California. And he said, Jeff, Lord Kitchener's just died. If we don't make this film now, we're never going to make the film. We'll lose it. And it was a very prophetic statement. And he was right. Since we started making the film right after Kitch's death, in fact, it opens with Kitch's funeral. I think seven of the people in the film have since passed away, including Kitch. So it's, it's a good thing we went down there to make the film. A couple of the people who star in the film, Lord Blakey, or Lord Blakey as he was dubbed, Mighty Terror, Kitch himself, Ross Shorty Eye, Pretender, one of the great extempo artists down there, all passed away shortly after we interviewed them for the film. This film is not only a documentation of Calypso music today in Trinidad, it's also a very important historical document. Many of the places we filmed in the last few years have either been torn down for new development or have burned. There's a massive fire in downtown Trinidad two or three years ago, right after we, we did our last filming there. And so a lot of the old colonial-style places that we filmed are now gone as well. You guys certainly did a good job of preserving a lot of history there. But that brings the question, with all of these Calypsonians that have passed on, it seems like it could be like a dying art. So where is Calypso that's, going to go? Well, that's, that's kind of the question we leave open-ended in the film. And the first cut of the film we finished two or three years ago. As you know, I've been through some health challenges, and it kind of put the film in limbo for a while. And now that I'm back on my feet, it's back to have its its launch internationally. One of the last scenes is of Lord Superior going through La Perouse Cemetery in Port of Spain. And it, it raises the question, at least metaphorically, is Calypso dying? Ten years ago or so, when we really started production on the film, I didn't think so. It seemed very vital, as and though there was a new generation come, of Clipsonians coming up to take the place of the generation that was known as the Young Brigade. And the Young Brigade came of age in the late 1940s and early 1950s after World War II. They were kind of the same generation as the the Rat Pack here in the United States. And they sort of had that same sort of ambiance. They were great performers, kind of tough guys, hard drinkers and womanizers, and also great talent. Uh, in fact, I, I, I've had the privilege as, as a kid of a young adult of seeing Sinatra perform several times. And the only other performer I've ever seen with that kind of charisma is the Mighty Sparrow. So, you know, it just seemed like Calypso, the next generation, would definitely come of age. There were some younger artists like David Rudder, like a, a fellow named Crow Crow, Blockstall, and etc. But what I've seen is with the death of these legends, the tents have broken up. The young people are not following Calypso at all. It's morphed into a genre called soca. And then there's this loud jump up with this heavy, heavy bass beat where you can't hear the lyrics, where there's really 
no lyricism to the music itself. And so the tradition of Calypso, as we know it and is defined in the film, is probably dying. I don't see it lasting for another generation. The number of people attending the tents has really declined in the last couple of years. So while we certainly didn't intend to capture a dying art form on film, in many respects we have, and we, we, we caught what were the last great performances by many of the great Calypso artists of Trinidad. I mean, I'll argue that we caught Blakey's last great performance there in that film. Certainly we caught Terror right before he passed, Pretender before he passed. I think it's the greatest performance that we were able to capture in that film of Pharaoh that I've seen in the last 20 years. He's brilliant in the film. He's backed up by Lord Superior on top of the uh, Hilton Hotel with a view of Port of Spain in the background. And I didn't realize, we didn't realize it at the time how quickly uh, this generation w- would die out. And of course, this past month, uh, the mighty Duke has passed away, one of the great all-time Calypsonians. He was a king four times in a row, the only one to ever be monarch uh, four straight years. And the film is bookended by performances by the Marty, Mighty Duke. So we really did, without thinking about it, capture these greats in, in the last great moments of their lives. Our special guest is Dr. Jeffrey Dunn, the producer and director of the film Calypso Dreams. Jeffrey, I have a question. When someone sees Calypso Dreams, what do you hope that they get out of the experience? Well, it's it's an interesting question. For Americans, I call it Calypso 101. I want people to get a sense of what Calypso is, to get a sense of the history of the art form, its its roots in Caribbean slavery, its links to Africa, and uh, the traditions of African music, to get a sense that it's, you know, the poor man's newspaper and all of that, and some of its interesting cultural sidelines how everyone who performs in Calypso picks a sobriquet like Mighty Duke or the Mighty Sparrow or Lord Superior, Brother Valentino, Lion, etc., to get an understanding of that. And then I want them to get a real sense of the beauty of the art form. Now, in Trinidad, every single person above the age of 50 knows more about Calypso than I do. There's just no doubt about that. It would be like one of them coming here and and doing a film about baseball. You know, it's just part of the culture. And people sing the songs, know all the songs, and love them. What's interesting is that even the most astute practitioners and commentators on Calypso in Trinidad and Tobago have told me that they've learned something about Calypso from the film. And in fact, Terry Joseph, the late uh, journalist, great journalist and Calypso commentator in Port of Spain, said that the way we shaped the film provided new insights into Calypso for him. And he saw and understood things about Calypso that even he hadn't thought before. So to me, that was the greatest compliment about the film. It provides access to someone in the United States or another culture who knows nothing about it, 
But even for the the astute practitioner or fan of Calypso, there's something in there for them as well. One of the people that you interview in the film is Harry Belafonte. And as you said at the beginning of the interview, many people in America may have the misconception that he would be a Calypsonian. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that is uh, an important part of the film. Harry, Harry Belafonte is, in my mind, one of the great cultural figures in American history. He really is a phenomenal figure. You know, our early, early breakthrough African-American artist in this country who was raised in the United States, spent part of his youth in Jamaica, who was raised in the United States when it was still Jim Crow America, a man of intense dignity and grand intelligence and also political commitment. However, down in the Caribbean, because he was the guy who kind of broke through with the art form publicly in the 1950s. Everyone accused him of down there. He teeth the music, man. He steal the music from us. He's not a real Calypsonian. And he's really someone who's looked down upon and who was looked down upon in Trinidadian society. And he talks about that in the film. One of the great things about the film that's happened is it's helped to build a bridge between Belafonte and Trinidad. People see his explanation of what he intended to do with Calypso music, his goals for uplifting Caribbean culture, and it's built a little bit of a bridge back between some of the older artists and the population of Trinidad and they understand Belafonte differently now. In the film, David Rudder says, there's not anyone in the world who has done more to promote Calypso music than Belafonte. That's an interesting comment coming from someone from Trinidad. You know, Mighty Chocta says, well, he watered it down. Some people, I think he says his line is something like this. Some people like their brandy straight and some people like their brandy with water. Belafonte put a little water in the brandy. Well, that's true too, but uh, he helped to make a bridge. And in my own life, he built a bridge for me around Calypso music that allowed me to to jump into true Calypso in Trinidad and to appreciate it. Very, very interesting. I was hoping you could tell us as far as the modern and the Calypsonians of yesteryear, who are your favorites? I've always been very partial to the Mighty Sparrow. I really think he has great, great charisma. There's a, a musician in there, Rod Shorty Eye. I really love some of the early Flipsonians b- before our time, like Lord Invader, who sang rum and Coca-Cola, absolutely brilliant performer. Lord Superior, who plays in the film, is a, a wonderful Calypso guitarist and performer, and really the most talented Calypsonian that I've ever seen perform down there, bar none. He's a, a brilliant musician, brilliant singer, brilliant songwriter, also an incredible impersonator, is Willard Harris, known as Lord Relator. Absolutely stunning musical abilities, and gifted writer, and also a, an extemporaneous artist. And I think people in the know 
in Trinidad, uh, people will tell you that Lord Relator is really perhaps the most talented Lipso artist ever. Jeffrey, thank you so much for sharing all of this insight into your film, Calypso Dreams. I was hoping you could tell all the listeners out there how they can find out more about this documentary. Well, we have a, there are a couple of ways. You can go to Google, and there's lots of information on Google. Just type in Calypso Dreams. Specifically, we do have a website that's called calypsodreams.com. The, the film is available in the Caribbean now, out of Trinidad, the DVD, and it's not subtitled. That's an issue. We had to subtitle part of the film for non-Caribbean audiences, and our North American DVD will be released, I would think, probably within the next two or three months. I have one final question. Yep. This broadcast is going out all over the world, so my last question is, what would you like to say to the world? I would like to say to the world that... From my perspective, Calypso music and the broader culture of Trinidadian Carnival is one of the most fascinating and unique cultural expressions ever. And I have to tell you, very interestingly, I just picked up the current issue of the Smithsonian Magazine, which usually focuses on U.S. history, and it's got a picture of Darwin and Lincoln on the cover. I open the page, and there are pictures of Trinidad's carnival in the current issue of the Smithsonian, because really Trinidad carnival is unique. It's far more complex than Mardi Gras or Brazilian carnival has so many more dynamic aspects to it. And what I'd love people to do is to get a sense of how this small Island country with a population of, only 1.2 million people has produced so many brilliant artists, so many brilliant musicians, so many brilliant pan players, so many brilliant masked men and women. It is really phenomenal how culturally vital this small island is. And I think it says something to all of us how important culture is and how important it is to maintain and celebrate our own cultural expressions wherever we be in the world. Jeffrey, I'd like to, first of all, thank you so much for giving us this interview. And secondly, I'd like to thank you for preserving and perpetuating a type of music that I feel is very relevant and very fascinating. And I think the film is excellent. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. And thank you for everything. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And I'm in LA for about eight days, so I'll talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you later. Take care. Bye-bye. We thank you and appreciate you dropping in for the Paul Leslie Hour today. You know, you can help the Paul Leslie Hour in our mission to provide independent media content like this by visiting www.thepaulleslie.com slash support. We truly thank you. This is your announcer speaking. Performance of the Entertainer intro song and Corina Corina outro song, courtesy of John Primerano. Well, that's it for today. So until next time, be safe and be good. <laughs>